Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Dr. Benson, to begin with, this is sort of a a wide open, uh, large question, but uh, you're one of those thinkers, so let's start this way. What is the state of higher education in America today? Well, Bill, I wish I could say it were were better than it currently is. Um, If you were to say, kind of writ large, what's the current state of higher ed in in America, uh, it's hard to say because in some states it's doing better. than other states, but if you were to look at higher ed in, in America, I would still say we are the envy of the world. Um, there are a lot of areas where we have deficits, whether it's in trade or, or otherwise, but there are still people clamoring to get into our universities and colleges. And so in that respect, we are still, I would say, at the apex of our game, and, and I hope we will always be there. And that's something we should take great pride in, uh, the fact that people have spent so much time and energy and capital in building up what Clark Kerr called the greatest university system the world has ever seen. And you look at systems throughout the world, whether it's in England or in Asia or Africa or any other part of the world, they try to emulate what has been created here. Um, I used in a speech the other day, the Times of London came out with their top 500 universities. The top 20, 17 in the United States. So that tells you uh, exactly how the world views our institutions of higher education. So that said, we have this reputation, but unfortunately it's not kind of distilling down to state legislatures or, or translating into support, and that's what concerns me. So that's why I'm trying my best, along with a lot of colleagues, to kind of put out this clarion call that uh, we've spent so much and so much time and so much energy and, and resources in building up the system. We've got to preserve it, defend it, promote it, because it is, the I think, the one thing that can pr- um, promote opportunity and ensure our place as a, as a bastion of opportunity uh, in the world. Are you troubled about the disparity uh, across the United States in institutions of higher learning You stated that some are doing it better than others. Uh, We all know in Kentucky, uh, a a poor rural state, that there are struggles with uh, budgets. And does that put us on an uneven footing with some of the uh, other institutions of higher learning across the country? Well, I think it does. And if you look at state budgets, look, I get it. I mean, there's a, a pie of resources and there are encumbrances on that pie, whether it's in Medicaid or other social services, roads, prisons, corrections, I mean, you name it, a state has bills it has to pay. But it really comes down to priorities and what are the state's priorities. And if you're going to make an investment in human capital, uh, the best investment I would argue a state can make is in education. And I would say it's both K-12, but a lot of states are now calling it K-20. So it's not just K-16, it's not just undergrad, but what an undergraduate got you 15 or 20 years ago now requires a master's degree. Now, what I would argue in Kentucky, there are points of entry for students along a broad spectrum. You don't have to have a four-year degree, but I would argue you have to have some postgraduate training credential 
whether it's at the community college and we have a great system in Kentucky, or in a private institution or one of our public institutions or a research institution. But you have to do something beyond high school. That is just a necessity. So to answer your question, yes, there's a disparity uh, in a place like Kentucky because we have limited resources. But how, what choices are we making relative to those resources? And what are our priorities? And I would argue we need to maybe have a recalibration of those priorities. You just returned from a, a conference uh, in New York, a very prestigious uh, group of um, thinkers and, and uh, big idea folks uh, uh, sponsored by the New York Times. Tell us about uh, what was discussed and, um, and some of the ideas that came out of that. Well, it was a really interesting gathering. A lot of presidents from all over the United States, uh, provosts and chancellors, et cetera, hosted by the New York Times, which, you know, regardless of your political uh, orientation, I would argue is one of the finest print dailies in the world. Uh, great journalism, and I've read it since I was in college. Um, and it was hosted by Frank Bruni in many of the sessions. He was kind of the moderator. So you had everybody from Michael Bloomberg, who announced a $375 million gift from his foundation to study educational reform across the United States, uh, to Lamar Alexander, the chair of the, uh, the um, uh, I think, the Education Committee mm -hmm. in the Senate, in the Senate. Um, former governor of Tennessee. Uh, you had professors. You had the CEO of Robin Hood, uh, a nonprofit in New York City. You had um, just a, you know, a panoply of, of unbelievable presenters and speakers the publisher of the New York Times that came and spoke. And they talked about the reputation of higher education in America and our reputation in the world. They talked about funding. They talked about access. Uh, they talked about you know, the two great landmark pieces of legislation of the last two centuries, the Moral Land Grant Act, which created the state universities, and then the GI Bill. And were we doing a disservice by not kind of continuing the tradition of supporting legislation in this century that lives up to those two pieces of legislation, which to my mind, next to the Civil Rights Act, are two of the greatest pieces of legislation in our history. So it was, um, you know, it's, it's rare you come away from a conference uh, really as, as energized and excited, but also challenged. I thought, boy, I've got more work to do. Right. You know, I've got, I've got to challenge my colleagues here, uh, but also challenge our elected officials that this is what this state is doing. This, these are the priorities they have in this, uh, this state. And I, I hear our governor talk quite a bit about Tennessee. And you know, if you live in Tennessee and go to community college for free, um, boy, how nice would that be? But somebody brought up the fact, does everybody need to go to community college for free? In effect, you're subsidizing a middle class student that probably doesn't need it, uh, when in point of fact, you could be helping somebody else. But the reality is, if you want to take that step and then maybe triage to a four-year degree, you have that opportunity, and it's not going to cost you a thing. What a great thing for a state to provide that opportunity. How does Tennessee do that? They, the way I understand it, they did it you know, 25, 30 years ago through their uh, proceeds from their lottery. They, in effect, bought an annuity and, through wise investments, built up this endowment to pay for uh, this community college uh, kind of annuity fund, if you will. They're uh, often uh, pointed to, um, uh, at least to Kentuckians, about what they do better. And, of course, there's the debate about uh, sales tax and property tax and, and all of the things that uh, we do differently from them and all of that. But uh, um, that's something to be studied and, and looked at. I want you to tell us about um, 
Uh, your new book, uh, which comes out in the fall, College uh, for the Commonwealth, A Case for Higher Education in American Democracy. Uh, you wrote uh, that with, uh, with somebody else I want you to tell us about, but just give us a, a quick synopsis of, uh, of the points that you make in the book. Well, there are two kind of seminal events. Uh, one is I gave a speech at Yale Law School, this was probably three years ago, and in the audience was Hal Boyd, um, who was a third-year law student at Yale, and I talked about the Moral Land Grant Act and the GI Bill as two of these great legislative uh, actions by two different presidents from two different parties at two different times in our history that arguably were two of the most difficult periods in our, or epochs in our, in, our, in our history. So the argument that we can't fund higher education is, it holds no water with me. If you can, six weeks before the Battle of Antietam, sign into law the Moral Land Grant Act, which creates land-grant institutions throughout the then United States that, of course, uh, turns into HBCUs in the 1890s, then, of course, also turns into the next century, uh, Colleges for Native Americans. If Abraham Lincoln can do that uh, in the midst of some of the darkest days of the Civil War, uh, you can do anything. You know, fast forward several decades, and 18 days after the invasion of Normandy, Franklin Roosevelt signs into law the GI Bill. Talk about two prescient presidents that knew that an investment in people, particularly higher education and access, was the best investment this country could make. Even in the, the kind of the, the shadows of uh, of strife, one of a, a, a national strife, but the other one a global conflict. Um, that's why this whole argument that, well, we can't afford to focus on education right now, we've got to take care of our other problems, is just not a, an argument, I, I think, that, that, that flies. So I gave the speech. Hal came up to me after and said, you ought to write a book. I said, well, Hal, <laughs> I have this other full-time job. And, and he said, well, I'll, I'll help you. And so I took him at his word. And long story short, uh, I told him about the speech. And this is the second seminal event I heard from James Clotter. When I completed Leadership Kentucky, he came, I think as part of the Chautauqua that you sponsor, Bill, and gave what I thought was a masterful talk about lost opportunities in Kentucky. And one in particular, uh, a governor in the 1920s from Olive Hill, and his name escapes me right now, Honest Bill from Honest Hill, Olive Hill, um, I can't remember his last name, but it, they proposed, I want to say, what? Fields. We're, we're, we're with our uh, board member, Tom Appleton, in the room, uh, the, the uh, uh, very uh, qualified historian to tell, to, to tell us that, and he just whispered, uh, William, J. William J. Fields was the governor. Honest Bill from Olive Hill is what they call him, and he proposed this bond, which in today's dollars is, was billions and billions of dollars, which would have been put into roads, schools, and universities. And as you can anticipate, it failed on a kind of a rural, urban line. And uh, Professor Clotter said, what would Kentucky, what would have happened if Kentucky had passed that and would have been the state that in so many ways let out in education and infrastructure as opposed to the state you just passed through? Um, he used that example. He used Transylvania. And he used the example of Thomas Jefferson arguing that for the establishment of the University of Virginia saying that if they did not establish that in the Commonwealth of Virginia, that the best minds in Virginia were going to go where? Lexington, Kentucky, and Massachusetts. 
And he was speaking specifically of Transylvania University, which at the time I think argued 10% of the United States Senate. Um, and then there was a rift between the then president and the governor and funding was re reduced. It went through a very difficult time and I'm happy to report obviously it's doing very well today. Mm -hmm. But who's to say if Transy had been supported and sustained, it would be on the level with the Swath War or, or you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I remember hearing that and I thought, boy, we could take those examples and extrapolate from Kentucky lessons from kind of America writ large, if you will. And so as Hal and I sat down and looked at uh, some of those examples and, and looked at some other things that have happened uh, in American higher education, we looked at the Truman Commission, uh, we looked at uh, some other things that I hope people will be able to read about in the book, and we come to the conclusion that America really is at that proverbial crossroads, that in order for us to prosper as a country, we've got to invest in the one thing that can change your life more than anything else, Bill, and I am a product of that. My grandfather was the oldest of 11 children from a small little farming community in southeastern Idaho, the first in his family to graduate from college. And his doing that changed forever the trajectory of his life and all of his kids and all of his grandchildren. And I'm one of 36 grandkids. I can't tell you how many, probably have out of 36, 35 of us went to college. And that's because of him. You are uh, a product of the humanities. Uh, in fact, you, were, um, you, you served the humanities uh, in Utah and some previous positions. Uh, you've always believed in a, a robust liberal arts education, uh, what you're, you're promoting uh, here at Eastern Kentucky University. Why um, do you believe so strongly that there um, is a, an intersection of not only the, the STEM um, uh, disciplines uh, of science, technology, engineering, and math, but also uh, the humanities and how they can coexist and, uh, and work together to, to make a, a better and a more whole person. Well, I'm, I appreciate the question. I'll use Lamar Alexander's uh, statement from last week when he said, you know, all of the founding fathers were, were liberal arts graduates. And he said, I don't think going to college is just to get a job. And boy, was I ever happy to hear him say that, because if you take kind of the Jeffersonian uh, view of why they established the University of Virginia, it was the liberal arts with a small L. And if you look at the root of the word, uh, libero, to make free, to liberate, uh, to open one's mind uh, to a whole kind of range of thought and, and perspectives and opinions. And if you can take that and meld it, of course, with all of the, uh, the hard science and the ability to uh, analyze and, and take data and, and, and process that, uh, that's great. But the foundation of that really comes from what? The ability to read, to write. And as I tell students all the time, you want to become a better writer, you've got to read the best writing. And the best writing is in the world's greatest books, and that's literature, and that's liberal arts. Have a good summer, and we look forward to working with you in the fall. Thank you very much, Bill. I, I really appreciate what you all do. You're doing God's work, and I'm happy to support you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.